90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing pretty well, John. How about yourself? Oh, doing good. Wrapped up in teaching as normal for this time of the year. Uh, yeah, exactly. Hey, speaking of classes, I have some big news for you. Are you going to learn how to use your Mac? <laughs> no, it's not that big of news. <laughs> I mean, sort of, I guess. I signed up for an edX course. Okay. And this is like a an online MOOC type thing, right? Right, right. It's a MOOC type thing. I'm not paying for it to get credit because I don't care about credit anymore. <laughs> um, but it's it's computer science and programming using Python. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, I thought you would be excited. Um, you know, I might as well stay inside because it's really hot here still. So um, that's what I'm going to do. Hopefully, I will. this will keep me on task to actually learn as opposed to just picking up a book. So, right. Yeah. We'll see what I can do after the semester. Well, A, as computer people, we're good at staying indoors where it's nice and air-conditioned and, <laughs> <I know>. and dark. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not looking forward to losing my tan because I'm taking this class, but it's going to happen. <laughs> well, fantastic. But we are really excited this week because we have a special guest joining us. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Laura Wallace all the way from New Zealand. Hi. Hey, Laura, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys doing? <laughs> Not as good as if we were in New Zealand, I think, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> it's a little cooler here than it is in Oklahoma right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Very oh, pleasant. So jealous. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually recently back to New Zealand, right? Yeah, I used to be here. I was here working at GNS Science, which is sort of like their national geoscience research organization, uh, sort of like the USGS. Um, I was here for 10 years. And then in 2012, I went back to the States, uh, to the University of Texas. And um, I miss New Zealand so much that I had to come back here. And um, so I have right now I have actually a joint position between the University of Texas and New Zealand. So I'm sort of half Kiwi, half American right now. So, oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds like the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Where are you at in New Zealand? Um, I'm at, it's called GNS Science, and it's in Lower Hutt, which is actually a suburb of Wellington, which is the capital. And I, I oh, live okay. in Wellington. So I'd say if you ever get a chance to visit Wellington, it's one of the best places in the world. It's yeah, a nice, excellent. nice city. I know from several people that have been over there uh, doing collaboration and field work, all the pictures are gorgeous. And it was very, uh, <laughs> I was very sad that I couldn't go. Yeah, it's pretty much, I don't think I've ever seen any ugly landscape in New Zealand. Everywhere is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> don't they, uh, don't they kick you out if you're not from there? You can only stay like a certain amount of time because like, I think everyone in the world would want to relocate there, right? <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough. I stayed here long enough that they actually let me become a citizen. So I, they can't kick me out, but <laughs> at least I don't think they can. <laughs> yeah. Like they're not listening. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, oh, we want to kick her out now. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, we've definitely had a lot of New Zealand talk here at the university because we were interviewing for a lot of geophysics positions. And I think this is sort of what we're going to talk to you about today is all these things that I don't know much about because I'm a sedimentologist, um, stuff like slow slip and earthquakes. And I've seen a lot of maps of New Zealand. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to kind of dive in because you were involved with some really fascinating projects. Uh, but before we get there, can you tell us a little bit more about your background before you got to GNS? 
Okay, so I guess, well, I, I can start with my undergrad. That's when I started getting my training in earth sciences. I did an um, undergrad in geology at the University of North Carolina um, in Chapel Hill. And it was, most, it was really in geology, but then I went on to do my Ph.D., thesis research at the University of California in Santa Cruz, and that was more in geophysics. And what I was doing there was using um, GPS, Global Positioning System, to track the movements of tectonic plates in Papua New Guinea, um, which is a place in the southwestern Pacific, just north of Australia, and it's one of the most active places tectonically on the planet. It's, you know, things happen in New Guinea at rates that they don't happen anywhere else in the world. It's a pretty incredible spot. Um, and so after that, you know, I, you know, you know, so basically most of my research focused on active tectonic processes and using GPS and then a job um, advertisement came up here at GNS in New Zealand um, as I was finishing my PhD and I got really lucky because I applied and they offered it to me and uh, it was kind of my dream job because um, I, I got to spend all my time working on active tectonic processes in the Western Pacific and using a lot of GPS and you know mostly focusing on problems in New Zealand but also you know working on problems in New Guinea and um, Japan and some other places as well um, but I guess I can maybe take it also back to the very earliest like when I actually first was conscious of geology and earth sciences as a topic that I might want to study um, it was in fourth grade and my fourth grade teacher put a bulletin board up with with Pangea and I just remember sitting there staring at that thing all the time. And I was never, ever able to look at a map of the world without trying to fit South American Africa back together in my head. And <laughs> so I think that early memory just kind of stuck with me and, um, you know, kind of, you know, was an early spur for interest, my interest in plate tectonics. So, um, but I think tectonics active tectonics and plate tectonics are super fascinating to me because, you know, if you can understand plate tectonics, you can really understand why the world looks the way it does and, you know, why things are where they are. So it's, it's a pretty fun thing to be able to do. And tectonics are such a big driver of climate too. You know, it's something you, you could talk about the geology, but you can also talk about the meteorology and what tectonics does to drive that as well. Mm. Um, that's sort of a part of a class I'm teaching right now. And it's always really surprising to me how much, plate tectonics affects everything about it really does it's the most yeah. important thing <laughs> everyone should care I mean, about plate tectonics <laughs> exactly and you're really for real saying that like that's true as opposed to everyone else that thinks their stuff is you know like yeah that is. i, I have like is. can back that up <laughs> exactly well, and plate agree. tectonics it's there's still so much to learn because it's such a relatively young field Absolutely. Yeah, it was only until the 1970s where that theory really took off. And, and, and it's kind of, was it the paradigm about, you know, that we used to kind of think about, you know, geology and, and a lot of, you know, our science processes now, it's really revolutionized everything. Yeah. You know, I, I said that in my intro geology class the other day that this is so young. And some kid was like, the 70s were a long time ago. <laughs> and it it oh hurt God. me a lot. <laughs> I was born in the 70s. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was painful. I was like, you need to watch yourself, kid. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> Are you saying I'm old? we're old? <laughs> uh, yeah, that is exactly the conversation. And he got really scared. So that was good. But <laughs> He'll never say that again then. <laughs> Well, and now, you know, there's even been, uh, there was an AGU email a while back, maybe a month ago or so, about the amoeba people, which were a 
a geology themed band and now they've got a song about Wegener and plate tectonics <laughs> that's trying to make it more people aware that this was not a brand new idea it just took a long time to get accepted it's pretty great yeah i have to oh, check that cool. out <laughs> yeah we'll definitely link it in but i guess if we want to kind of fast forward a little bit to what you specifically work on it's right now all about slow slip right some of it is i'm uh, working on some things other than slow slip as well but probably what's been taking up most of my time for the last several years has been working on slow slip and slow slip, well, slow slip events specifically at subduction zones. And I guess, do your listeners, every, does everyone know what slow slip events are? I don't, or, I don't know what slow slip, so you should probably. Okay. All right. I'll <laughs> delve tell in you. A little bit more. <laughs> and anytime I try to explain it, I go into something about the lab and critical stiffness and oh, yeah, it's that's... probably nothing related to what's really going on. Uh, so well, John, you that's are right, a specialist John. in slow slip. <laughs> Models are wrong. Models are always wrong. <laughs> um, well, so what? Well, slow slip events are this really new phenomenon that we've only begun to recognize in the last ten years, um, and it's a, a type of fault slip behavior that occurs on on plate boundary faults around the world, and in particular, subduction zones are where we tend to see them the most. And um, a subduction zone, as as many of people probably know is where one tectonic plate dives down beneath another and and subduction zones are where the lar world's largest earthquakes occur and where you also get sort of these um, line chains of volcanoes above them and so forth um, but what a slow slip event is is a slow slip event is very similar to an earthquake in that it involves more rapid than normal movement along a fault line um, so an earthquake that movement you can have meters of movement in a matter of seconds whereas in a slow slip event you can have you know several centimeters or tens of centimeters of movement over a period of days to weeks to months to years. So it's more rapid than normal movement um, along a fault line. And the primary way that we know slow slip is happening, the reason that it was only really, you know, really widely understood in the last 10 to 15 years is because the main way that we can see these things is with using continuously operating GPS instruments. So what these continuous GPS instruments are, are these you know, sort of monuments that are solidly connected with the bedrock. They've got a GPS antenna on top of them. They're recording data from the GPS satellites every day. And we can get positions of those GPS sites to within a few millimeters every single day. So we can track the movement of the land on a daily basis. And um, the, the first people that noticed that slow slip was happening were some scientists in Canada. Um, and their GPS sites were doing some really strange things. They would, most of the year, they'd be moving sort of westward. And that was sort of consistent with the, with the Juan de Fuca plates subducting there and kind of the plates being locked together and it pushing the land sort of eastward, sorry, they were moving eastward. But then occasionally, um, about every 15 months or so, they would, they would take a jump to the west of, you know, maybe up to a centimeter um, over a period of a few weeks. And, and they were puzzled at what this signal was. And then they finally realized, you know, this is happening over a big region. And this is probably a big regional slip event on the big subduction zone plate boundary fault, um, I think, you know, around 30 kilometers um, beneath the land surface there. So um, this is, um, I've been using GP, a GPS network in New Zealand, so very similar to what they had in Canada um, to see the slow slip events there. And, um, you know, we we see, you know, New Zealand, the slow slip has turned out to be a huge player in the accommodation of plate motion on the subduction zone. We see loads of slow slip events, you know, at least every year we see a couple slow slip events. And we see very different behavior as you go from the northern part of the subduction zone here in New Zealand um, to the southern part of the subduction zone here in New Zealand. 
And um, so I've been using GPS to study these things. And then more recently, getting into using seafloor instruments to investigate these slow slip events. Because right until recently, we've been very limited to investigating slow slip that's occurring beneath the land, beneath where we can have GPS stations. But we can't have GPS offshore because you can't get the signals from the GPS satellites down to a GPS on the seafloor. So we have to use other approaches to that. So um, so I've been uh, kind of making the foray into the offshore region more recently with that. So these slow slip events, they occur, you said, relatively deep and over a long period of time. So what are the implications for the person on the surface going about their daily business that slow slip events occur? They, they would have no idea that these things were occurring. I mean, the only reason, like I was saying, that we could detect them is because of these changes in the movement of the GPS sites. Um, sometimes, for example, in New Zealand, what we often see is some larger slow slip events can be accompanied by swarms of, of seismicity, usually micro seismicity, but sometimes we can get, you know, events, you know, up to five, you know, a little more than magnitude five. So people can feel some of these swarms of earthquakes that can get triggered by these slow slip events. But um, you really can't, they're happening way too slowly for, for someone on the land to actually feel it. But they can interact with normal earthquakes, though, in such a way that, uh, I mean, they are relieving some of the stored strain energy in the plate. So there could be some kind of clock advance or uh, clock delay mechanism in there, right? Absolutely. There's sort of two sort of aspects of this. One is they are taking up a lot of that plate motion. So they're, you know, in some, in where the slow slip is happening, they may be reducing that likelihood of having an earthquake. So they're, they're relieving a lot of that built up stress. But in the other sense too, um, where I was talking about this triggering of, of, of earthquake swarms um, is, you know, they're redistributing that stress onto other parts of the plate boundary, onto other faults and loading up other faults and pushing those closer to failure. So you often do see a, a temporal kind of association between earthquake swarms and slow slip events. And in Japan, in the magnitude 9 um, earthquake that happened in 2011, scientists um, had some sensors offshore and they see some evidence for a very large slow slip event um, actually leading up to that magnitude nine earthquake possibly triggering it. So there's a really, that's probably one of the biggest um, things that we need to try to understand in the field of slow slip right now is um, what exactly is this relationship between earthquakes and slow slip? And could we possibly be able to use these slow slip events as a kind of a forecasting tool in the future? So that's that's interesting to me that we, we found this with GPS, not by looking at the seismic networks, but I'm assuming you can go back and find these in all the seismic data, right? Yeah, it was, so after they started seeing it with the GPS, um, so scientists in Canada and also in Japan around the same time started noticing a really strange um, seismic signal, um, very similar, it was sort of a tremory kind of signal, very similar to what they see in volcanic environments, but, um, but this wasn't at volcanoes and it, it wasn't related to volcanic tremor it was and so they they started to notice particularly in Canada that these slow slip events were temporarily correlated with these sort of what we call non-volcanic tremor um, signal and so that in 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 the Cascadia subduction zone, which is the subduction zone beneath the northwestern U.S. and, and western Canada, um, they see this very intimate linkage between this, tre this tremor and the slow slip. Um, and they also see a similar thing in, in 
um, parts of southwest Japan as well. A very, they, they see an onset of these tremor events at the time of slow slip. So you can, um, a lot of scientists, uh, seismologists now are, are sort of really going for trying to look at the tremor, you know, as another way of investigating slow slip processes, um, you know, as a seismic signature of slow slip. And then I think also there's a lot we can do with the micro seismicity that happens at some subduction zones in, in concert with this slow slip um, to, to understand the process as well. So was this something that we just thought was noise before or just yeah. some kind of movement that was unexplained? Yeah, I think I think that in Canada they were really puzzled by it. And I think they, you know, from what I understand, um, I don't know firsthand what they thought in the beginning, but that they thought it was some kind of noise. And then they realized that temporal correlation with the, the slow slip events and they realized, okay, this must actually be related to this to this process. So I think they were pretty puzzled by what it was for a long, for a while. But See, this is why you never delete data, because you never know. Exactly. <laughs> ten, ten years later. See, our problem is we have a lot of rocks that are, you know, 40 years old that are still sitting around the lab that we can't get rid of because we never know when you want to revisit anything. You exactly. Know? <laughs> the week after you throw it away, you'll realize, oh, man, I needed man, it's that. it's so true. So true. <laughs> I mean, be on an episode of Hoarders or whatever that show is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Except it's just all rocks and a few cats thrown in there. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that describes my house perfectly. <laughs> well, so when it comes to slow slip in New Zealand, you were actually the first person to find a signature of slow slip. And kind of what was that process like in terms of convincing yourself that what you were seeing was something <laughs> that was an actual signal? Well, so the first time that we saw it was in October 2002, and I had actually arrived here maybe about six months before. And we were, when I arrived, we were in the process of starting to build the continuous GPS network that we now have at the Hikarangi subduction zone in the North Island of New Zealand. So we had a few sites out, and I was, you know, most, you know, a few times a week I would look at the time series of the GPS sites just to see what was going on. And there's this one site. Gisborne that I was looking at and um, you know it had taken this big big eastward jump um, over about a two-week period and I was like whoa this is crazy and and this the Cascadia um, subduction zone slow slip results had come out you know in the last year and so we were all kind of aware of this as a as a possibility you know that we might see these things on our continuous network and and it was in the sort of right direction to be consistent with a slow slip on the slow slip event on the subduction zone um, and then we found there was a surveyor a local surveyor in Gisborne that had a, a GPS set up on his building he was using the data for surveying purposes and we got that data and that showed the same thing so we were able to confirm that it was indeed a regional event that happened that caused this eastward jump and it was about two centimeters over about a um, two-week period so it was significant you know to put that into context two centimeters in many places that's a year's worth of plate motion um, so that was over two-week period so um, and since then um, you know we gradually built out the GPS network in the North Island and we have actually really dense coverage in the North Island now and um, we can see these things in quite a quite a bit more detail um, and we've seen events similar to the, one, the first one that we saw in October 2002. Those those have occurred again a few times since then. So, um, but yeah, it was pretty exciting. I was actually kind of skeptical. It was sort of 
the Cascadia stuff came out, you know, we hadn't seen these things at other, a lot of other subduction zones yet. So I was like, oh, maybe it just happens in Cascadia. We won't see anything like that in New Zealand. But <laughs> it was like pleasant, <laughs> very pleasantly surprised that we did, that we did see actually way more than I ever expected we would see here. So. Well, and the Cascadia events, I mean, they're roughly the same amount of slip pretty much like clockwork. In fact, I remember people were trying to connect them to the, the Chandler wobble, that 14-month cycle. Uh, but in New Zealand, you've had a, a really wide variety of durations and sizes of events. Yeah, that's totally true. I mean, Cascadia is almost one end member where they're very regular, which is actually kind of unusual now that we've seen these slow slip events um, and their varying behaviors at other places. But in New Zealand, we see quite variable um recurrence rates of these events, very variable sizes. You know, it's not, it's very different from the ones that they see in Cascadia. They're nowhere near as well behaved or predictable, um, the ones in New Zealand. So why is that? What's, I your, think, what's your guess? I think it has something to do with um, sort of heterogeneity, sort of variability of the, the sort of processes happening on the subduction plate boundary fault, you know, the strut, you know, the stress state and different points, the frictional properties of the rocks, the, you know, there's just something, you know, it's a lot more variability in the, the physical properties of the plate interface, spatial variability, whereas in Cascadia, there, you know, appears to be a fairly uniformly large area that's kind of locked and, um, and you have these slow slip events happening at the bottom end of it. So I think that spatial variability in processes and, and stresses and so forth causes more temporal variability in the slow slip behavior in New Zealand. Whereas in Cascadia, I think the, the system may be a little bit more um, spatially or less spatially variable, letting you get a little bit more regular sort of recurrence behavior. Well, and so you mentioned that when you're looking at GPS data, you can do that on land. But when you're out closer to the to the trench, you have this problem that there's a lot of water above you that's getting in the way of anything working. And I know doing any kind of marine geophysics is generally some form of nightmare because it's pretty complicated. <laughs> uh, but you were the lead author on this paper that just came out in Science about this project uh, called Hobbits that you led. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. And I have to say, it's the perfect acronym. <laughs> I have to credit one of my uh, colleagues, collaborators on the project, Susan Schwartz at UC Santa Cruz, came up with that acronym. And it stands for Hikarangi Ocean Bottom Investigation of Tremor and Slow Slip. And yeah, I think it's a great acronym. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was not lost on us nerds. That's for sure. So. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been very helpful. I think it helps people remember the project a little more to have a good acronym. <laughs> So. <laughs> so how did this project come about? I mean, from conception to actually implementing it? So we, it's been a problem we've been grappling with here for a long time, realizing that at the northern part of our subduction zone, off the sort of northern part of the North Island, we have these very shallow slow slip events happening. And they're, most, they're happening mostly on the offshore part of the plate boundary rather than beneath the land. So we're quite limited and what we can, you know, using just land-based data to investigate these things. And, you know, we really needed offshore data sensors that were able to record the movement of the land, you know, the seafloor above these events to try and figure out exactly where they're happening, you know, and also seismometers out there to better locate earthquakes in association with them. Um, but it really, so we kind of 
had known for a long time that we needed to try and tackle this issue, um, but it really gained momentum. We had a, a workshop here in uh, so long ago, I can't. Oh, 2011, August 2011, <laughs> we had an uh, IUDP workshop program, which is the um, now called the International Ocean Discovery Program. It's the, the drilling program um, that's funded by a lot of different countries, and they you know have ship that goes around and does big drilling projects around the world to try and understand a lot of um, really fundamental earth science um, you know questions and problems. And so we had an IUDP workshop here in New Zealand um, to address, see if, you know, can we use IUDP drilling to try and address this issue of slow slip events? Because there's a lot of, there are places in the world, like offshore the northern part of the North Island, also potentially Costa Rica, and also up, you know, part of J central Japan, where you can actually use drilling to, you know, try and understand uh the plate boundary fault where these things are happening because they're happening at shallow enough depths. And then, so a, most all, most of the collaborators involved in the Hobbits project were at that meeting and we all kind of got together and decided that we needed to do this. And so we started submitting proposals to NSF to try and get this funded, um, to get this uh, seafloor deployment uh, funded, which was basically um, the two types of instruments we put out there. One, obviously, ocean bottom seismometers to look at the earthquakes offshore in association with the slow slip and also do imaging of the crust and, and the faults surrounding the slow slip area. But then also um, the seafloor pressure sensors, which is the, the what I was interested in is, and is kind of the really novel, you know, new thing that, you know, hasn't been done very often before and hasn't been applied um very often to the slow slip problem. So, um, so the seafloor pressure sensors essentially, you know, they sit on the seafloor and they're measuring the pressure due to the overlying water column. So, if your seafloor moves up in a slow slip event vertically, you can imagine you have less water above you, so you'd have a decrease in pressure. Whereas if your seafloor moves down, um, say in a slow slip event or an earthquake, you would have more water above you and an increase in pressure. So, we're just continuously monitoring pressure. Um, at the seafloor at the, that instrument. But yeah, it was really that IUDP workshop where all of these people got together and realized they wanted to try and do this. So we had collaborators from uh, Japan and the US and New Zealand involved in that project and it really got hatched at that workshop. So that's why workshops are, are really, uh, a, you know, a good thing. Right. <laughs> Talking to your colleagues <laughs> is a good thing. So, uh, Yeah, it's hard to get some of us out of our offices or labs, I think, sometimes. Yeah. So. <laughs> you have all um, the cats and the rocks. and Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you just can't, can't, even find, can't even find the door. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so on these, like, pressure changes due to this, I mean, these slow slip events are relatively small. So what kind of pressure changes are we talking about that these instruments are recording? Yeah, so we are so the vertical deformation we were kind of expecting out there is on the order of you know a few centimeters, and what we actually saw was actually up to about seven centimeters. So we're looking mm -hmm. at you know you have seven hundred several hundred pascals pressure change oh, okay. basically. Okay. So that but, equivalent water depth. Yeah. But seven centimeters is not a lot when you're considering everything else that's going on with the water level. <laughs> in the ocean. So I, I can imagine that it's not as simple as looking at the data yeah. and yeah. saying, oh, no. there's, a, there's a seven centimeter jump. Those no. pesky tides. <laughs> that, that was actually the biggest challenge in doing this project and, and was also the biggest hurdle. We had to submit the proposal to do this a few times to NSF because reviewers were really skeptical that this was actually going to even work because the oceanography, like you mentioned, the tides, you know, those have signals on the order of a meter and a half. Then you also have currents and eddies and things like that you know, which can be tens of centimeters. 
And um, so this is, you know, was the biggest challenge to overcome was sort of defeating that oceanography um, and, and actually pull out the, the seafloor deformation signal that we were after. That was the biggest challenge. And we were really worried that, you know, it might not work. Um, so so that's all post-processing stuff, right? Yeah, it is. What we basically did was um, we used, you know, in addition, so we put most of our sensors on the, the overriding plate, the plate that's not subducting, because that's right above where the slow slip is happening. We put most of our sensors above the slow slip area, but we also put some of our sensors on the subducting Pacific plate. And in a slow slip event, we would not expect any vertical deformation or vertical movement um, of the seafloor at those sites. So we basically use those sensors as reference sites because a lot of the oceanographic noise, the tides, the currents, and the eddies are, are going to be very regional in scale, um, you know, larger than the sort of footprint of our network. So they would be seeing the same kind of oceanographic noise on those sensors in the Pacific plate as they'd be seeing on the upper plate. So what we did is we, we essentially averaged those together, the, si the signals from those two sites, and then we subtracted it from the rest of the network and essentially stripped that out. Um, and, that, um, and then we also did some low-pass filtering to get rid of some of the higher frequency noise. But that really, these things popped out. Um, I, I really am shocked at how well that worked. <laughs> and not having done this kind of thing before, I was a little bit skeptical and I was almost afraid I wasn't able to start looking at the data until a couple months after the cruise after we recovered the instruments because I had some field work in Papua New Guinea right after that and then for a little while I was almost scared to look at the data because I was like yeah. oh my god we put all this effort into it what if it didn't work <laughs> what if we can't get rid of the oceanography so it was um, it was a little touch and go there but it was once you know we started and it was within a day or two we realized oh yeah this is here. We can see this really well. well yeah. So how long were these sensors out? How much data did you actually get? They were out for just over a year. Um, so we put them out in, was it June of 2014? And we retrieved them in, um, it was July. Gosh, I am time chronologically challenged. <laughs> I can't remember dates. It was about, I think, June. Yeah, it was June last year in May of 2014. So they were out just over a year. So that's what, that's what the article says. So you're doing yeah. good. Okay, good. I'm glad you've got that up to fact check me. I need fact that. Yeah. <laughs> so there was probably some, some gaming and some strategy there to figure out if these are going to be out for a year. I'm assuming that's partially because of battery constraints. You, you want to make sure you're not a year of inter slow slip deformation. Absolutely. <laughs> and we also, we have quite a bit of variability in the size of slow slip events there. I mean, we, we usually, I think most years you would get at least a little one up there, but we wanted a big one that would produce large enough movement of the seafloor to actually for this technique to be useful. So we have these big ones there about every four or five years. But as I mentioned before, the New Zealand slow slip events are a lot less well behaved and less predictable. So we um, chose that time frame, you know, because that really seemed to be, you know, based on the past behavior, the most likely window of time to get one of these big events. But it was, again, that was something I was really nervous about. Um, you know, did we get the right time frame? Are we going to pull these things out and the big one's going to happen a week later or something? Um, yeah. You know, so it was a bit um, nerve-wracking. But, um, but yeah, we got really lucky, actually, in September of 2014, which was, you know, a few months after we deployed them. We had a really big slow slip event. It was actually the second largest one that I'd ever seen up there since we first started seeing oh. them in 2002. So we hit, we wow. hit, we got super lucky with that, I think. 
man, I want, what kind of voodoo do you have to get to get? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you have to put millions of dollars Some... of equipment on the seafloor. Exactly. Usually that's the opposite, though. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, yeah, that's right. Usually it doesn't work in your favor. Yeah, <laughs> Some things don't exactly. happen. Huh. Yeah. There's some volcanoes out there. I don't want to know about any, you know, disappearing undergrads or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we had to sacrifice, actually... throw a chicken overboard. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great, though, because, yeah, that, that seems to never line up. So how wonderful. That's the definite one. You're like, oh, there it is. That's good. Yeah, and it, and it was great because we had this, you know, our Japanese colleagues and, and then the U.S., you know, came, you know, funding came to the table. So we had a lot of instruments out there. We had like 20 some instruments out there, which in previous studies where people have, have tried to use pressure sensors to look at things like slow slip, they've maybe only had a few sensors out. And you really, I think to demonstrate that it works, you have to have a lot of sensors out. And so we, we just kind of threw them all out there that, that year. And it, we got so lucky to get the, the big one when we had that whole network out. So there was this big challenge in the post-processing, right? So that's the big mm -hmm. sort of mental and technological challenge. But I always like to talk, because we talk to a lot of people that do geophysical cruises on here. Like, I, people don't understand how massive these campaigns are. So, like, what was the big physical challenge about deploying all these instruments? Physical, do you mean, like, physical, like, uh, exhaustion, like, like personal yeah. physical mm -hmm. challenge? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, not necessarily just for you, but just in general. Like the, there's a lot of work, like physical work that goes into this. There's a huge amount of work, but, and, but the, the research vessels, you know, they're well equipped with things like cranes and, and crane operators. And, you know, they're not going to let me get up there and do that. Cause I'll probably break it. And um, <laughs> well, so, no you fun. know, in terms of things that require real skills, <laughs> the ships have, you know, have technicians, you know, that are, that help us out a lot and they, you yeah, know, they know nice. how to do this stuff. They do this kind of thing all the time. And, um, that's and good. then also the um, marine, the OBS or the marine, you know, instrumentation engineering guys from um, Columbia University, and also had one from University of Texas and some from Japan. These guys do this all the time too. So they, to be honest, with the physical challenges and actually pulling this experiment off, you know, actually doing it, I would say that that was more with the with the you know, marine engineers and, and technicians, you know, from the universities um, that accomplish that because um, us scientists, I think most of us are kind of useless when it comes to <laughs> using really high tech stuff. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm kind of joking there. I'm kind of joking kind there of, a little yeah. bit. No, it's but, but, true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was actually, I, I mean, I would say physically, you know, doing field work in a place like Papua New Guinea where I have to walk all day, you know, between GPS sites is much more difficult than being on a ship right. and um, ah, just nice. kind of decide where to go and pick this instrument up and put that one out next. So, but see, this, doing, is, this is the, Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I was saying doing any kind of marine work. I mean, I think all of us are very reliant on the, the technical support there. So I think that's the importance in like picking your collaborators, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. definitely. Yeah, yeah. So what part of the field expedition were, were you involved with? Because there was obviously two cruises, one to put out the instruments and one to go get them. Yeah, I was involved in both of those. Um, so I was on the recovery cruise that we did with the U.S. research vessel Ravel last year. I was the, the chief scientist on that, so was kind of being the boss. Uh, I don't like 
being the boss that much, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, and I was on the deployment cruise as well. And um, so I was involved in both of those. And then five of the instruments that we used out there, um, we actually built at the University of Texas with our marine technician that we had there. So I was really lucky at UT that they have that sort of capability there and, and um, resource. And um, he and I worked together and also with a lot of help from the guys at Columbia University to build five of the, the seafloor sensors. And um, so I was also involved in building, you know, putting together some of the sensors. Um, and that was a really steep learning curve for me and I think a really valuable opportunity because otherwise, you know, if we hadn't done that, I would have, it would have been a little bit of a black box to me about how it worked um, in some ways. So in terms of the seafloor sensors. Right. And what we've talked to uh, Natalie Accardo on here before about the terror of sending out the acoustic trigger pulse into waiting uh, so yeah. I, I'm not sure how there's deep, all kinds uh, of terror right? yeah. how deep the water was there but you probably had to wait for quite a while to know if these were going to come back up and how many of them came back up yeah they they all came back up it was incredible wow. you know so you're talking about physical challenges I would actually more ask about the psychological challenges because of that <laughs> oh, I... deep terror <laughs> of I mean when you throw the instrument off you're worried am I ever going to see that thing again and then like you say when you send the acoustic release command to to get it to come back up it can often take a little while before you even realize that it's listen to that command and lift it up off the seafloor. Um, and also the terror of, you know, when you get to the site, you know, is the instrument still there? Um, right. But so all of ours came up. One of ours came up a little bit early um, and washed up on the coast uh, of oh. the North Island. <laughs> and this is actually a great story. It was actually one of my instruments. We're not sure exactly what happened to it. It might have gotten, it looks like it might have gotten hit by something and that, that may have caused it to release early. But um We were really super fortunate. So we had like my name and address and phone number on there. And I got this call from a guy (laughs) up on uh, the north, this really remote part of the East Coast of the North Island who runs a horse trekking operation. And his name is Reg. And he was like, you know, I've got I've got your thing here. Look, you know, I was like, (laughs) thought thought it might be the aliens have landed or something. But he was actually out there um, on the beach with a horse trekking client and they found it and they spent about two hours digging it out of the sand oh, um, wow. and he had a little quad bike with a trailer on the back and they put, loaded it up onto the trailer on the quad bike and hauled it up to his property and this thing is heavy it's like the size of a large industrial washing machine and it's you know like a few oh, hundred geez. pounds it's, it's not a, a minor feat so um, but wow. yes yeah, so, so we got all of our instruments back and one of the instruments had a, a more interesting story to tell than the other ones so. hey man there's a, there's a lot of krakens out there that's all i can say krakens, yeah yeah exactly Kra- yeah <laughs> yeah i figured yeah. i figured investigating the psychological challenges of marine cruises was five or six shows worth of stuff so oh yeah oh yeah you could probably you well if you you could probably piece some clips together from different ones where you discuss this and have your your yeah oh exactly yeah psychological special yeah and it's definitely worse i know some of the people that were involved with the transportable array would say when they would go back and dig up stations there was always that moment when they cracked the seal on the electronics barrel and are, are there going to be lights or has this been sitting here doing nothing for the last oh. 18 months? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, there's many stages of psychological kind of peril. Like, yeah, there's many <laughs> stages where you can have fear and um, yeah, you just have um, to, 
Yeah, maybe I guess hopefully it makes you makes you stronger. I don't know. That's that's why counseling <laughs> counseling services at universities are so cheap. I think it's just <laughs> the marine physicists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> so, where do you think? I mean, you obviously got a lot of really great results from this and it worked beautifully where do you think that we're heading in terms of slow slip research or where are you heading whichever one of those you kind of want to tackle well i mean i guess i can talk a bit about both um you know in, in terms of the big outstanding questions in slow slip research i think is number one we don't understand why these things happen and what the physics are behind it and what the mechanisms are behind it and so that you know People like John, if you guys don't know, John is doing things that I think are, are moving us a lot qu closer to understanding that. But I think we need to do a lot more work on, on understanding why they happen. We've had this massive flurry of observations of them with the GPS and also the seismologists looking at tremor and other seismic phenomenon. But we need to move away from the observational side to the why. Um, and then I also think that I mentioned earlier the uh, potential for slow slip events um, as, you know, potentially as a forecasting tool way off in the future. So if we can better understand what is this relationship between, you know, damaging, you know, seismic, you know, events and these slow slip events, then we may be able to actually use that as a tool in the future. So trying to understand the linkage with earthquakes and slow slip events is very important. Me personally, um, it, I see I'd like to get more into using the offshore sensors. I think seafloor, sea we call it seafloor geodesy, and geodesy is basically the field of study of the shape of the earth. And so people who do GPS, they do they do geodesy. And um, so this, this field of seafloor geodesy is kind of a frontier that we need to start trying to make some inroads into um, so tackling some of these issues of measuring plate boundary deformation offshore. So I'd like to start looking more at offshore slow slip events and um, and, you know, I also feel like these offshore slow slip events, they're happening right out near the trench. They're super shallow. You know, our, our, our Hobbit's experiment showed that they're happening to within a few kilometers of the seafloor. So um, this is really exciting because you can get very close to where they're happening. You can do really high level seismic imaging of these events. You can do very near field monitoring of the events. Um, you can actually, in some cases, drill into and sample the fault and, and measure conditions within the fault zone where they're happening. So um, shallow slow slip events are kind of a, an area that I kind of see myself moving into a lot more in the future um, because I think there's a lot of opportunity there to answer some of these outstanding questions about why slow slip occurs. So, Well, and what about, uh, do you think there's more scientific cruises uh, maybe other than deploying instruments that are going to be important, uh, especially for understanding shallow slow slip? Yeah, well, um, I can talk a bit about what's going to be happening off New Zealand in the next few years. It's actually going to be a really exciting few years because there's a whole lot of experiments planned for the offshore Hikarangi subduction zone in the area where we where we had our Hobbit's deployment, where we see these really shallow events. Um, number one, there's going to be a, a 3D seismic cruise with the U.S. Um, vessel, the Langseth, um, that some scientists at the University of Texas are leading. Um, and that is going to allow really high resolution imaging of the slow slip area and, you know, potentially even give us an idea of some what the physical properties might be in the area where these slow slip events are happening. Some really unprecedented resolution imaging of, of a fault that hosts slow slip. 
Um, and then another thing that's coming up in early 2018 is we're going to have IUDP drilling. So that IUDP workshop was also useful in that we were, you know, <laughs> wrote some success, a successful proposal that actually got scheduled um, with the U.S. drilling vessel, the Joides Resolution. So there's going to be an IUDP drilling expedition also in the Hobbits area um, to use drilling to um, both sample um, the incoming plate and the, the rocks that are probably hosting slow slip deeper down, um, but before they get subducted, and then also taking, you know, doing coring and logging in the shallow part of the fault zone and also in the area above the slow slip area. But then we're also going to be installing um, observatory instruments, sensors in the boreholes, which could be there for, you know, 10, 10 years or more. Um, you know, both right in the, the frontal part of the, right at the plate boundary, and then also further back, right above where the slow slip's happening. So we're going to monitor changes in things like pressure um, and temperature and, and other, you know, other processes in those observatories. So those are things happening in the next few years. So there's a lot going on here, trying to use multi a multi-pronged approach to attack this problem and, and really use this very shallow slow slip event area, which is very accessible as kind of a natural laboratory to understand slow slip processes. So that is so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just I just like flashback because I understand the psychological, you know, terror that comes with <laughs> taking a core and then, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine on that kind of scale and being like, all right, what do we got? What do we got? Is there something in there? Oh, oh yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> so how far below seafloor do you think you're going to be able to drill? Well, if the deepest hole that we're looking at is about uh, 1,200. We haven't decided exactly which hole for this particular site. It's about 1,200, 1,500 meters. And this is on the site on the subducting plate. So the overriding plate, we're going to be getting into the fault zone itself at about 400 meters. Um, but we do have wow. a proposal, another proposal in to use the Japanese drilling vessel, which that drilling vessel is capable of drilling to much deeper depths um, to actually potentially drill into the fault zone, you know, a few kilometers below the seafloor um, where we saw a slow slip in the Hobbits experiment. So, um, you know, it's very uncertain if that deeper drilling project would ever happen because those are extremely expensive and extremely challenging but you know that's a possibility um something that we're you know trying to get interest in but right so uh, a question that i always like to add in here and it i think we've already talked about it somewhat was uh what software and tools are necessary for you to do your work and how has technology influenced how you do your work daily yeah, so, this is like daily stuff, not just like, you know, post-processing software, but, you know, what can you not live without? Um, <laughs> that can I not live without? Um, <laughs> I cannot live without GMT. I don't know if you guys know it. GMT. Uh -huh. <laughs> this probably archaic. Well, it's, I'm sure it's not. It's probably archaic because I use it and I was born in the 70s. But um, <laughs> That's right. So old. So old. It's generic mapping tools, which is this amazing piece of software that I use to make almost every figure that I do. And um, so I use GMT a lot. I couldn't live without that. MATLAB has become, I, I've come to love MATLAB again. I, I had a MATLAB <laughs> and I separated for about 10 years, but I've kind of come back to it. I, I That'd be hard to, to live without that again. Um, of course, the internet, you know, I mean, constantly 
it's amazing to find papers now. Google just googling, you know, for papers and you're looking for publications. You know, I was born in the '70s, so I remember having to go to the library <laughs> and photocopying articles, you know, from a hard copy journal and not being able to get them online. And which I probably spent 20% of my grad school career doing that sort of thing. So, um, <laughs> exactly. but, but John, you're really lucky. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's why I finished. It took me a little bit longer because Yo, <laughs> no, man, yeah, no. I'm going to use that now. Oh, exactly. back in my day, we had to print journal articles. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, you had to go I, photocopy I, them. Exactly. Them. But not more than 10% of the book. Cause then that's, you know, yeah. copyright yeah. infringement. You could do a show on the psychology of um, people coming up now, you know, versus those of us back then. I mean, how how we may approach science really differently and oh, approach things very so I differently. Teach, I teach field geology, and I had a student say to me, you know, so we're out in the field doing topographic maps, and she goes, I looked at a paper map with my grandpa once. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know where to go with that. Was <laughs> it only Google Maps? She'd only ever looked at Google Maps. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, John and I were talking about this Pokemon thing. Like, it's making people look at maps and get some spatial awareness that maybe they have lost. And I'm kind of excited to see if that's actually sort of, you know, comes to fruition. But just I my thoughts on that. I that's true because I know my, my used to have a, what I thought was a pretty good sense of direction, but I think it's degraded just because of Google uh-huh. Maps. And yeah, right. it's, yeah. Exactly. So mm. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> Absolutely. And then there's people like me the whole time that are trying to automate all of your field yeah. tools. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Putting uh, us out of a job. <laughs> no kidding. Here I am taking this programming class and John hasn't been outside in four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Laura, it's been great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us and educating us all about this awesome project. Well, thank you for having me. It's been really fun to talk to you guys. And I hope now everyone appreciates why plate tectonics is the most important thing in the world and why (laughs) slow slip events are really, really cool. (laughs) And and we'll have you back on for the psychology of deep sea drilling. Yes, Yes, Uh, That sounds good. As long as I'm not in the loony bin by then. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Okay. We'll talk to you later, Laura. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks. All right, Shannon. Well, I don't know about you, but I never thought that we would have a podcast where we talked about hobbits. <laughs> I mean, I'd always hoped, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> somewhere somewhere deep down. Um, that was so much fun. I We can't thank Laura enough for coming on, and I can't wait to go to New Zealand to visit her. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> so <laughs> I guess that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> Sorry, back to the bear bells. Um, I do, I do what I can. Right. <laughs> uh, but so, that's kind of a lie, right, John? This isn't even a paper. Yeah, this is actually an article that you found in the New York Times Magazine. It does reference several academic papers that we might have to go back and add to our fun paper list. Oh, but it's yeah. called. David's Ankles, How Imperfections Could Bring Down the World's Most Perfect Statue by Sam Anderson. Um, So this came to me uh, via Gina Starbuck, uh, one of my oldest friends who I don't hold it against her, got a geophysics degree. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I think think some of these more in-depth articles would be right up your alley because it's starting, it talks about, obviously, 
David's Michelangelo. So a very famous statue. And what's wrong with it? Obviously, the article is a lot more about Florence and the surrounding area. But geologically, there's some really bad stuff going on there. Yeah, so I was actually surprised at the length of this article. And of course, it does at yes. some point go into, you know, a personal story and personal connection. And yes. it's actually a very well-written article. But what we're interested in is the physics. Uh, right, exactly. So, I mean, I've never been to Italy. Have you been to Italy? I have been to Italy, but I have never seen the David. Okay. All right. Um, so it, the David is not outside anymore where it was originally, you know, put back in the... Um, Back in the 1500s, it was installed outside in a piazza, but now it's inside, obviously, to be protected. Um, but I was shocked at some of the stuff that happened to that poor chunk of marble before it even became David. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's been out of the weather for 143 years, but in the weather, much, much more than that. <laughs> yes. But it's also been, well, troubled from the start. <laughs> right. And the most shocking thing in this was that the block of marble that the David is made from was quarried 11 years before Michelangelo's birth. I couldn't believe that either. <laughs> and it was quarried to make this statue, the biblical David. Uh, but that's where the problem started. <laughs> oh, right. Exactly. Um, so this was a huge chunk. But the problem was that it wasn't quarried by someone who was you know, really knew what they were looking for. Like when you look at a big hunk of marble and I mean, marble is a, it's a metamorphic rock. It's really hard. It's metamorphosed limestone, but you know, it's still really porous and it's actually, I mean, I feel like marble is very fragile in a lot of ways because it's really um, sensitive to stuff like weathering and, all kinds of other things that we'll talk about here in a minute. Um, and so this poor block was not very well picked. It had a lot of discolorations, which means it probably had some kind of weird fluids moving through it uh, from the very beginning, lots of porosity in it, which isn't necessarily good if you're trying to actually carve a statue. Yeah, and the rock mechanicists will recognize this is Carrera marble, and that's something that we often use in mechanics experiments as kind of a, a standard marble. But as, as we said, this block was originally cut in 1464, and it took two years to move it the 80 miles to Florence. <laughs> and so, I mean, they didn't start on it right away, right? That's not exactly what happened. So it wasn't just that amount of time, right? 11 years before Michelangelo was born, two years to get it to where it was, um, they couldn't get anyone to really do it justice, and it set out in the weather for a good 30 years, just this chunk of marble, and there's a lot of weather there. Right. The original sculptor uh, that the city had commissioned to do this uh, picked this bad block of material. It was oddly shaped. It was kind of narrow, and they didn't think that he was going to be able to make a realistic human figure out of it, so they actually fired him, and like you said... <laughs> the block set for a long time and as they put it in the article it cooked <laughs> right exactly um i love it that they say you know this is something that people that work with marble know a lot about and it's something as a word that a geologist would use too actually <laughs> to talk about right. this word i mean limestone had to cook to become marble anyway but you can get further hydrothermal alterations which happen a lot in these mountainous areas um that really 
cook the rock. And so what that does is make it really brittle, which is not what you want to be working with. Right. And, you know, you know, as a geologist, when you go up to an outcrop, the first thing you do, the reason you have that hammer is you knock off a chunk of rock to get below the surface so you can get a fresh exposure. So you get away from the surface layer that's weathered. Right, exactly. Which, I mean, obviously, to Michelangelo's credit, he was an amazing genius. And he was able to get sort of past all these this blocks imperfections um, and come out with the masterpiece that is the David today. But although it looks really great, that's not the whole story. Right. <laughs> so there was this shed built. The David was carved. It was moved. Uh, and that's where the David's trouble started because it was, well, actually I take that back. The David's trouble started a little bit earlier because it fell off the cart into a ditch before it was carved by Michelangelo during its initial transport, which may have damaged it. And then after he carved it, as it was being moved to the piazza, it was pelted by rocks from children. Right. And not only that, this was the time of really big political turmoil and people were rioting in the streets and they were heaving furniture out windows and apparently a couch took off part of David's arm as well. So that was... A, right. It, it broke <laughs> the left arm of David. Exactly. So it was a little bit of a failure as well. Um, so he had a rough beginning just from the inception of the rock that it was. But these hairline cracks are what was a big problem due to sort of how he was positioned out on the piazza. Right. It turns out that when you have a six-ton statue and it is slightly off-level... And all of that weight is on these relatively narrow ankles. And as you can see, David's center of mass is off of geometric center. So right. it's kind of an eccentric. Uh, it actually has put a significant amount of stress on these ankles since it was not leveled. And they have developed cracks, which could one day be fatal. Right, exactly. I think uh, they said that if you tilted, well, there was experiments done with putting a lot of miniature Davids into a centrifuge. <laughs> I loved this at different I, angles. Uh, yes, yeah. I thought that was great. <laughs> at different angles to try to sort of <laughs> a compound all the stresses of the years. And it said if he was tilted more than 15 degrees, they think that that would be catastrophic failure. And not, not necessarily at the ankle, but those cracks, you know, moving on up and then he's done for. Right. So this is a fun topic about crack growth, where you get this critical crack growth, you get a stress concentration at the tip of a crack, and it begins to propagate. And it turns out the best guess of the people that have been looking at this is that somewhere right below the knee, uh, he would shatter and then fall. His left elbow would hit the ground, that arm would break, and then the rest of the statue would shatter. Yeah. Yep. That was a very graphic uh, paragraph in this uh in this article it was and <laughs> you know the the thing is now the david is inside mm -hmm. sheltered from the elements and leveled right but as we know italy is subject to earthquakes <laughs> and it could just take one earthquake to do the david in uh right exactly um <laughs> it's talking about now only natural disasters are the only thing that David has to fear. Um, before we talk about some mitigation, though, I thought this was great. In the 19th century, they tried to restore the David when they were putting it inside. And one of the ways they did it was they tried to clean him with acid. 
which if you're a geologist <laughs> when you're in the field you put a couple drops of acid on rock and see if it fizzes to tell if it's a carbonate or not because you're dissolving part of the rock right <laughs> oh and marble is a carbonate so painful like i said it's a metamorphic rock but its parent is limestone and so that was so painful for me and so they talked about even before worrying about all this other stuff they had to restore him from the restoration which and 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 apparently there's a problem with his big toe that keeps coming off and then somebody that uh was a little disturbed tried to take a hammer to his foot in 1991 Mm -hmm. yep so uh so there have been some problems there have for sure but i thought that i mean the answer is pretty easy and they say that you know italy is just awful inability to do anything and get stuff done and pay for stuff is what's keeping it back but um it's not a really expensive i mean it's kind of expensive not compared to the david's value but they're talking about putting an, him on an anti-seismic base. Right. So something like you would put underneath a large building. Right. Um, I was even thinking because <laughs> we have a very sensitive instrument in our paleomag lab, our, our susceptibility meter, this Kappa bridge, and it's on sort of an anti-shaking table because the little room it's in is right by a hallway. People go by all the time and you can't have any movement while it's taking its measurements. And I mean, that's, that's all it is. The base would move along with it and the statue with any tremors and the statue would be, you know, protected from that kind of movement. So I think they said 250,000 euros was the cost. Right. I say relatively inexpensive, but. (laughs) Yeah. And there's even an instrument on the back that has been monitoring things like the tilt and temperature and all that, which once they characterized it, they finally turned off because there wasn't really a lot of hope of getting this anti-seismic base anytime soon. And they weren't learning anything new. Right. Yep. Hmm. Well, hopefully there's going to be no major, major earthquakes in the vicinity of Florence anytime soon. Um, obviously, the David would not be the only one to uh, suffer in that instance, though. Oh, yes. There would be a lot of folks and a lot of museum pieces that were damaged because mm-hmm. there's just not the infrastructure to deal with the seismic hazard. Right, exactly. Um, it sheds a light on, you know, there's all kinds of seismic mitigation for life-saving instances but you know this is important too it's italy's culture but it's our world cultural heritage as well um so it's interesting to see where where we can put our money and how we can sort of help um you know save some of these pieces for everyone down the line absolutely and i don't know about you but this made me want to order several mini davids off of amazon (laughs) and uh, <laughs> put them in the lab centrifuge. <laughs> I'm going to have to find a life sciences lab to get a hold of that centrifuge, but I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you should make friends with a geochemist. Ah, all right. Megan, I'm coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, that is your fun paper Friday. If you have suggestions for fun papers that you would like to hear us talk about, show topic suggestions, questions, comments, anything like that, we would love to hear from you. We've been getting lots of great feedback lately. So Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? All right. So keep it coming, everybody. Um, email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. On Twitter, John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And together we are at don't panic geo. 
and come over to our Slack channel. Uh, we're on the software underground, swung.rocks, and join the Don't Panic channel, and uh, we like to goof off in there a lot, too. Oh, absolutely. There's been some fantastic discussions this week. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there has. I mean, I got to tell you, John, I got, I got one from Martin, and it's a good joke, but I'm saving it for you. You'll never know where it's going to come out. <laughs> oh, I'm curious now. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> Well, until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.